Hello and welcome to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Berkeley. My name is Stephanie Gerson, I'm a graduate student myself, and I'll be your hostess for the show here on KALX Berkeley. So today I'm talking to Eric Halstein, a PhD student in the Energy and Resources Group. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Stephanie. Uh, We're going to be talking about his work on the influence of environmental health and social information on consumer behavior. So first, can you give us a brief introduction of your work? Sure, sure. Uh, I work on consumption, and my interest is mainly in using consumers or thinking about how consumers can be a really effective tool for influencing the environmental, social, and health impacts of global production systems. All right, so let's start with your three main research questions. So the first one about what is the impact of environmental health and social, which I'll refer to as EHS, information on the consumer's willingness to pay for products. So can you talk a little bit about how you measure willingness to pay and why you chose that as the metric that you're using? The reason for choosing willingness to pay is that the underlying premise of these sorts of equal labels and getting consumers involved in um, uh, exercising the power of their consumption is that it's through the market or it occurs through sort of typical market mechanisms, the most important of which is price. And so willingness to pay is really just that. It's how much is somebody willing to pay for a product. And the idea is that it's a uh, it's a signal to the production system to make more of presumably products that are better for the environment, the health, or social. Um, and so in that sense, willingness to pay is a really good metric. Now, um, that said, it's also a very narrow metric, and it has a bunch of issues associated with it. And we can certainly talk about those, but there are sort of distributional questions, I think, about which consumers are actually willing to pay. Mm-hmm. And then for participants that actually in the rest of the world who don't actually have that um, option. Uh, option really of paying right. or participating, sort of what happens with them. Okay, So briefly, can you talk a little bit about what you've found with willingness to pay? Everything uh, so far is preliminary um, in the research that we're doing. That said, um, what we have done so far are a number of pilot studies. Uh, We've brought people into our lab group. We've had them use, for example, this platform that we've designed that provides just reams and reams of information to consumers um, we've gone and done surveys. We've actually done these shop-alongs where we follow people around in the store and we try to understand how they shop. <laughs> and uh, actually, that's quite fun research to do. Obviously, sure. is trying to understand, you know, what people are what people are doing. Stalking um, shoppers. Yes, it's a. Uh, and they need undergrads. So if you want to <laughs> do that, that would be yes. That's something to look into. <laughs> it does sometimes feel like stalking shoppers. Actually, I had never thought of it that way. Um, but some of the interesting conclusions were one is. A surprising number of people, particularly with products that they buy on a regular basis, don't actually go into the store with a shopping list or a really clear idea of what they want to buy. Mm. Um, A surprising number know, for example, that they want to buy a toothpaste, but they don't actually know – they may not know specifically what brand and they may not know which type and there's a lot of variation. And so that suggests that there's actually – a lot of possibility here for catching a consumer at the point in their buying behavior when they're making the decision and when they use information, mm-hmm. when if we can get the right information to consumers, we may actually be able to influence what they buy. Uh-huh. 
So the second question you ask, which consumer groups are most responsive to EHS information and for which products? So, right, this is a fundamental question, and obviously if you put all consumers or all products in one big pile, you probably won't end up with very meaningful conclusions. So according to which criteria do you classify uh, consumers and products into groups? It's a, you know, it's a great question, and it's, um, it's a really fundamental one for the research. So on the product side, some of the interesting dimensions are whether uh, it's a public good or a private good. And what I mean by that is a consumer who uh, consumes a movie, who goes to see a movie, is consuming a public good. You do that with your friends. And so your friends can actually see what you're doing. And as a consumer, you may actually care more about presenting a particular image to your group of friends. Hmm. Whereas there are other products that are private, like, again, like toothpaste or shampoo or something like that, where it's not quite as obvious to your group of friends or your reference group what you're buying. So that's one dimension. Other dimensions could include whether it's a durable or a consumable, uh, the price point, how complex the decision is. So buying a car is likely a very different um, decision process than um, purchasing a pharmaceutical, a shampoo or something like that. On the consumer side, dimensions could include how much information the consumer actually has prior to the purchase. So some people are just more informed about the environment or um, more motivated or more, more um, they may have a personal experience. Certainly people's income levels matter. Um, how kind of susceptible they are to their peer group, kind of peer group pressure. Um, all of those things lead to both segmenting, like you said, the product side and the consumer side. And you're exactly right to say it's a, it's a complicated issue that has big implications for how we think about um, kind of which groups of consumers will be the most responsive to the kinds of information that we can provide. So a lot of this, it sounds like, is about coming up with functional classification schemes. Yeah, functional and operational. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of at the end of the day, I know that I'm a graduate student at Berkeley, mm -hmm. and this is all kind of uh, blue sky research, and it's not. Ooh, but I'm sure someone would pay you for that information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, I'm I'm uh, in a sense an activist, and and my goal here is to try to understand these systems well enough so that we're actually influencing what's happening in these global production systems. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's move on to the third question then. So. How does the impact of EHS information vary across alternative channels of information delivery? So um, first, just what channels are you comparing? And, and, and briefly, what have you found so far? The, the channels would be this sort of traditional um, point of purchase label, something like an eco label of a certification where if you go into Home Depot, you might see something on a, a, a wood product that says what it is. And then on the other, um, extremely other channel is something where you could walk into a store with a cell phone, scan the barcode on the product that you were interested in, and receive information about that particular product or maybe a set of products. And that's the, the type of work that we're working on at the Consumer Information Lab. Um, and sort of those are, in a sense, the two extremes of the channels, a point of purchase, mm -hmm. a very static label versus this sort of dynamic internet, web, cell phone-based channel. Mm -hmm. So... Um so you're saying that 
someone could bring their phone and scan the barcode, but what about mobile connectivity where people could just wander around with their cell phones and find out information about everything everywhere? Anyway, if it's online. They could. So it's... Uh, Would you need to use the barcode? You might not. And actually, this is a kind of a research area that we're interested in, which is trying to figure out from the consumer's perspective what the best way is to help them uh, receive the information that they need at the point of purchase. And so it may be, you know, I have an iPhone, so, right, uh, it's very easy for me to go on the iPhone when I'm in the store and kind of figure out. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's not easy for me to figure out what these environmental right. health and social are. Right, you don't necessarily are. know where to go. but Where to go or how to synthesize the information, and it's kind of complicated. But at least I could surf around on the web. But, you know, most people, uh, you know, my parents are a great example. They just have, like, a regular standard cell phone. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what would they do? I mean, it has mm-hmm. a camera on it, but that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Um so it could be that this this phone that can scan barcodes is for a type of consumer. Absolutely. And trying to figure out which types of consumer for which technologies is part of the puzzle. Right. So it also sounds like you're treating um, point of information as anywhere, right? Um, if you have your mobile phone, you can get information wherever you are. But increasingly, point of purchase is also anywhere for the same reason um, due to what's referred to as... Mobile financial services or M finance, right? Where you can use your phone as a credit card. So, how would that influence your work? What do you think will be the influence of not only the information being anywhere, but the point of purchase being anywhere? I mean, what if I could buy my food and clothing from uh, the Live Earth concert instead of at the supermarket, right? Maybe I would buy different things. I, you know, I I love this conversation. I, I you should be on my dissertation committee. Okay, <laughs> sure. Um, I, I mean, I think that you're hitting on these trends that are occurring and, and that are important to think about when we when we analyze this sort of information and consumer behavior, and and this trend of the the purchase point becoming basically anywhere. Mm-hmm. That you can, you know, like you said, that you can walk by an advertisement on in the subway, and and you know, punch in the code that's on that advertisement, and have that immediately be, you know, go to a product that you buy that gets mm-hmm. sent to you at your house. Mm-hmm. Um, what that points out to me is that this kind of static point of purchase in the in a store in a retail location model is fine as long as um, it happens to be the set of consumers and the set of products that that maps to. But I think that this other piece of research. And, I, you know, the the word is a little vague, but this sort of Web 2.0 world, mm-hmm. I'm not always sure what that means exactly. Mm-hmm. But it certainly is super relevant for the kinds of questions that you're asking, which is, you know, as people move into, into buying in new locations, in new ways, through new technologies, with a sort of unprecedented amount of information possible, um, how, how can we leverage what is sort of this phenomenal revolution in information to in fact impact what is a basically intractable problem to date about these global production systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm also curious: Are you looking at e-commerce as a venue for consumption, um, which might actually be an easier venue for you to gather data on consumers? Yeah. So the answer is yes. The um, the way I'm doing it though is through this consumer information lab because we have. Uh, developed this platform. It's effectively a research platform where we have information about, uh, at this point, it's more than 40,000 products, and it's an alpha version, so it's not publicly available. Um, but as a test platform, it, it, it we can simulate a lot of what goes on in the sort of e-commerce commerce world with this site, with the one exception that 
consumers can't actually buy a product through our prototype. Mm -hmm. And so um, I've been working with some of the people in the information lab trying to understand how we can design experiments Mm -hmm. that actually allow us to understand what somebody would buy. And then I think the next step is trying to convince um, some of the those undergrads to yeah, uh, some undergrads stock them to, uh, online <laughs> do more stocking of yeah um, <laughs> e-stocking yeah but yeah. also to convince some of these people on some of these e-commerce sites like eBay or whatever right. either that they want to work with us or that to design experiments which we can potentially do through an online auction huh that would be really interesting um, so speaking of e-stocking and uh, web 2.0 um, are you also incorporating these new uh, participatory media like Yelp.com or do you know what Care2 is? I don't know what Care2 is. So Care2 is interesting because it combines social networking with activism. So social networking for uh, for many different purposes, better distributing petitions or finding jobs that are aligned with your values. And this kind of relates to the public goods that you were talking about, because once you put social, once you throw consumption into the thing, then all of a sudden, you know, you're combining social networking with consumption and people can see what you're buying, which, yes, kind of similar to the Facebook ads thing, but I'll ask you about that in a second. But um, I was wondering what you think is the influence of social networking tools on consumer behavior once people can see what each other are buying and influencing each other together and maybe even you buying in that venue, right? If you were buying through care to or something, how do you think that would influence um, your work? My guess, so the, 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 uh, the, the sorts of behaviors that you're describing are entirely relevant because they have the potential to take this sort of private, this act of private consumption and turn it into an act of public consumption. And then also to bring into that the sort of um, influence of a reference group, whatever that reference group is, whether it's your group of friends or a group of experts like you might have on Yelp, where it's not so much of a self-defined community, Mm -hmm. whereas on Facebook or something like that, it's actually more of a self-defined community. Mm -hmm. So it brings in this component of allowing your reference group to actually influence what you're buying. And my suspicion, and there's been a little bit of research in this area, but not lots, is that, in fact, it will be, um, when we think about sort of major levers in terms of getting consumers to buy differently, it'll be a huge lever. Mm-hmm. Great. I, I I actually refer to them fondly as consumer networking tools. And you can quote me because I Googled it last night and actually nothing comes up. CNTs. Yeah. <laughs> it's important to come up with acronyms when you're a grad student. I need um, to work on a few more acronyms. Right. right. So now I want to know, um, what do you think of this whole Facebook ads phenomenon? Um, so s- speaking personally, uh, I, I don't like the idea that uh, – that 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 sort of what I was uh, that what I do on on Facebook and the products that I buy actually becomes public information. Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking on a, on a personal level, uh, I think there's some major issues with it from a consumer's perspective, from Facebook's perspective. I actually understand why it's a logical next step. I think that the risk there, though, is that some of the very things that make Facebook successful which have to do with creating this trusted community and things like that, aren't consistent with these other models of ads and products. Um, 
so it requires managing that extremely well. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you've got a few thoughts on that, though. I do, but we can talk about that offline. Um, and so for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to The Graduates on CalEx. Today I'm talking to Eric Halstein of the Energy and Resources Group about his work on the influence of environmental health and social information on consumer behavior. Okay, so let's talk about um, how you've referred to global value chains. Um, and I wanted to talk about how they're changing. But first, can you explain what a value chain is? Yes. A, a value, the way I think about a value chain is that it is the set of steps that's required to go from taking a product, from extracting the basic, basic resources from wherever they come from, um, all the way to selling that product at the retail level. So it's all the steps that go into that. There's a couple of key features of the ways that these value chains are changing. One is that the um, ability of companies to manage these value chains has actually increased. And so in a world where um, these value chains are actually stretching across more territories, more countries, and are increasingly complex, the information technologies to manage these very sophisticated systems has actually increased. And so the value chains are just more complex. They're bigger, they're longer, um, and things like that. Um, and then on the second major point there is that the fluidity um, and fungibility of the global economy is such that they're also very flexible. And so in relatively, depending on the industry, and there's obviously a lot of variation there, depending on... Um, on that, these companies can move their supply chains and their value chains around uh, in different parts of the world depending on the working conditions. So bringing it back to consumers, are there certain types of value chains that consumers have more power in? Well, I think there are value chains that are uh, effectively more sensitive to consumer demand. Mm. And in particular, the global brands, mm. companies like Nike, um, are more susceptible because their um, success as a business depends upon their image as a brand. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's let's keep going with this theme of consumer power. Um, so presumably not all consumers have equal power um, and haven't even talked about shareholders, but let's just stick with the word consumer for now. Um, and... Obviously, there's a big difference between individual and aggregate power. So where does consumer power reside and how is it distributed across consumers? And do you incorporate this question in your research? This is, it's, this is a question I don't directly work on, but is very relevant for thinking about the end game here, which is how to influence these global production systems. And... One obvious, but I think not entirely um, useful way to think about this is just different consumers have different levels of income and different willingness mm -hmm. to pay. And so as individuals, uh, there are some people who are more influential system than others. The real power, I think, from consumers comes in the form of aggregated action. Mm -hmm. Whether you think of it as a boycott or mm -hmm. a boycott or... Um, the aggregation of lots and lots of buying signals. So just having many consumers buying many similar products, um, that could be thought of as a form of aggregation that definitely should translate into consumer power. Mm -hmm. Okay, so something, speaking of 
aggregated consumer power, something I've always wondered, and I'm excited that I finally have someone to ask. So what would happen if um, consumers, let's say lots of consumers in the aggregate, actually uh, deployed Black Friday, right? What would happen if lots and lots of consumers just didn't buy anything for one day? You know, I, I think it would be cool. Uh, speaking personally, like I just think it would be, it would be amazing. Obviously, consumers wield a tremendous amount of power, and yet I think most consumers consume individually, mm-hmm. and it's very hard for a consumer to believe that their purchase, because it's like one tiny thing, right? Mm-hmm. I go in the store and I buy a tube of toothpaste. It's hard for them to believe that. Well, it's actually the aggregation of that across millions of bar uh, of you know things of toothpaste that we do or we don't buy. Mm-hmm. So I love the idea of a day uh, when consumers sort of exert their power. Right, which is where the power of these social networking tools comes in. So hold that thought for a second, because we'll be right back. So on next week's show, I'll be talking to Jonathan Hay from the Mechanical Engineering Department about his work on cultivating creativity and innovation in design. So please join me, Stephanie Gerson, for The Graduates, every Monday from 12 to 12.30 on CalEx. And if you have general feedback, ideas for graduate students to interview, or if you'd like to be interviewed yourself, don't be shy. Send an email to thegraduatescalex, all one word, thegraduatescalex at aol.com. Welcome back. Today I'm talking to Eric Halstein, a PhD student in the Energy and Resources Group, about his work on the influence of environmental health and social information on consumer behavior. So um, ultimately, it sounds like you're uh, elaborating a theory about um, the relationship between knowing and doing, right? Between moving from information to action, which is clearly an ancient and very meaty question, but a very fascinating one. So, so now, you're absolutely right. It, yeah. it is. I mean, at the end of the day, what I think about is how to get people to do something differently. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about doing. Uh, so let's talk about governance. Um, so first, uh, can you tell us also what governance means and describe a little bit maybe about how our understanding of the mechanisms for governance are changing? The uh, yeah, without trying to make this sound too dry, <laughs> um, there the literature has many definitions about governance, and there's lots of sort of subtleties to it. But the but the sort of key aspects of it, I think, are that governance refers to a set of institutions, rules, and processes that are designed effectively um, to accomplish some goal that that we generally agree upon. Uh, something like healthcare is a good example of that. So. Within the kinds of issues that I'm thinking about in this global production, the ways that it's changing include um, the fact that the growth and the, the globalization of the economy has meant that the role of the, tra- the traditional role of the state has actually shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard for a single country to now regulate these global production systems that, in their absolute value of dollars, may actually be bigger than that country, mm-hmm. um, and that certainly span multiple, multiple countries. You have this beautiful image in your prospectus, and I, and I do think it's beautiful. Um, Thank you where very you, much. <laughs> where you take a value chain 
uh, of the seafood industry all the way from manufacturing to distribution. And uh, you kind of insert different governance mechanisms into the different links in the chain. So, for example, for aquaculture, um, you have sustainable investment, which you know might be an effective uh, mechanism for aquaculture, whereas um, for downstream on the chain for retail distribution and sales, you have eco-labels and certification schemes. Um, so can you talk a little bit about um, that image or or what your vision of, of governance is and how to elaborate, I guess you could call it a governance system, because you're talking about all these different mechanisms that are operating a, across the value chain. The uh, I'm glad you like that drawing I spent I really many, do. many hours on it. Um, the so the seafood just as sort of a setup the the seafood industry is extremely complex uh it's very hard to track a fish that's been caught in you know on some boat in the pacific ocean all the way to the retail store maybe in san francisco and i think for that reason a lot of the efforts around the regulation or the governance of the global seafood industry focused on the production of the seafood so it was focused on things like the catch method um, the you know things like uh, specifying the diameter of the holes in the net that you use to catch the seafood, like pretty specific stuff. Same thing on aquaculture, trying to make things like that more sustainable. Um, and arguing or believing as a premise that if you sort of made the production side more sustainable, that consumers would know what to buy. And um, that clearly wasn't true. Actually, it hasn't made a big difference. Global fisheries worldwide are in a state of crisis and affects literally billions of people who depend on the seafood. So it's kind of a big issue. Um, and so I think some more of this regulation and the governance has actually moved to the consumer side and trying to work with consumers and to create some market pull, getting mm-hmm. consumers to buy more of the right products. Mm-hmm. Um, great. So do you envision that the governance mechanisms at each link in the chain will actually change through time. So even in the example that I was using before, so whereas right now sustainable investment maybe works for the aquaculture link in the chain, um, do you think maybe in the future eco-labels could work there or or another governance mechanism? So definitely, and you're hitting on a really key point, which is that the for these chains to change, it, they the entire chain needs to change almost at the same time, and there's a huh. lot of challenges for that. So just having consumers wanting to buy the right thing isn't enough if the right thing isn't being produced. But don't different links in the chain influence each other? So if consumers do something and that'll, you know, yeah, put pressure upstream on the chain, isn't so you were just talking totally, about consumer pulls. Yeah, totally interesting, right? Is sort of so then the question is which are the key leverage points? Uh-huh. What's the right kind of ordering? Right. What's the right mechanism at which point in that chain? Right. Uh, so like you said, you know, specific points in the chain like aquaculture might need a, a particular thing. Like maybe there it's not eco-labeling, but it's actually very rigorous monitoring. Mm-hmm. Right. No, you have to choreograph this whole process. And you have to like- choreograph a process in which the actors in each of these steps of the chain aren't always the same company. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you get the consumer to buy the right thing and then it's one company after that. Mm-hmm. But you get a bunch of companies that for legal and economic reasons don't actually talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So how do you get this sort of systematic change across the value chain mm-hmm. when 
that kind of coordinated um, action is very difficult. All right. So, so my last question for you, Eric, I'm sure everyone asks you this, is how has your research influenced your own consumer behavior? It's, uh, it's funny. I th- I'm glad you asked me this question now and not six months ago. I, I feel like <laughs> You're more proud of your answer now. I feel now. like I can give a stronger answer now than I could have six months ago. Um, I'm more careful now. I read the labels on things uh, I, I, uh, and I act on them. I think I used to read them but not act on them. Uh, and now I sort of take that extra step uh, to figure out what it is. I do a little bit more research and I'm also uh, – more likely to ask friends what they're buying when I like what they're buying for its environmental health or social attributes. So I walked mm. into somebody's house, a friend's house the other day, and they had, you know, some kind of sustainable cleaning solvent. Mm. It's like, why is Eric always looking through my <laughs> medicine cabinet? Yeah, I was cabinet. rummaging through their medicine cabinet. Um, <laughs> so I went and bought They told me what it was. I went and bought it. Huh. Good. Uh, and actually, one last question. Do you have any words of advice for listeners about where to go or what to do if for to find buy, information? For buying. Yeah. So, uh, um, you know, I, I honestly don't have uh, any necessarily, you know, obvious ones. Um, but what, what I say is uh, take a look at the website that we've put together for our research. It's the Consumer Information Lab. Uh, you can Google it. Just put Consumer Information Lab in Berkeley, and it will give you a better sense for our research and some of the issues that we think are important. Great. So it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much, Stephanie. All right. So if you'd like to keep an eye on what Eric and uh, his group are up to, definitely visit the website of the Consumer Information Lab. And you've been listening to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research on KALX Berkeley. My name is Stephanie Gerson. Please send your comments to thegraduatescalex at aol.com and join me next Monday from 12 to 12.30.